I am your host, Dr. Saran Nataki. Welcome to Power 365, Phenomenal Woman Wednesday. This podcast will address topics ranging from what is a phenomenal woman? Are you enough? Community service, paying it forward, the manifestation of dreams through words and action, the power in being a woman, fashion, and much more. Stay tuned. Phenomenal. Phenomenal woman. It's Phenomenal Woman Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in to part three of my discussion with Dr. Jesse Baker. If you haven't had an opportunity, please go back and listen to episode 28, parts one and two. You won't be disappointed. Stay tuned. Well, what do you think about, um, we've talked a lot about um, everything that's happening in this country or a lot that's happening in this country with respect to race relations and, um, you know, perspective on white privilege and, um, as we come to the end of our conversation, um, I want to ask you what your experience has been internationally with race relations in the context of what you do, and you know how does that compare to what you've experienced here? Yeah, I think you know it's interesting. I, I you know, so I do international development work, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I work really at the grassroots level. I you know, I founded the, co-founded the organization, you know, Fair, Frameworks International. I work with some mm-hmm. awesome people, um, but I also was country director for a grassroots community resource center in Port-au-Prince, Haiti for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with directly with some amazing local organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, generally speaking, I mean, the, the, um, I guess, it's institutions that have been charged with uh, international development and institutions hold institutionalized thought over, you know, the past, you know, so I'm teaching right now, I teach two classes at Chapman University. One is an undergrad class called the politics of humanitarianism. And the other is um, a graduate class that is strategic design for international NGOs. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a non-governmental organization for listeners who might not know. Um, And, you know, I really go into kind of the, the structural elements that we have been sort of pushed into working towards through. Mm -hmm. And, in it, it's racist. So much of it is just blatant racism. And, you know, the individual people uh, who work in the field, you know, would never acknowledge that they were racist people. It's like, it's hard for me to acknowledge that I am. Uh, we haven't touched, one of the things we haven't touched on is uh, what defines racism? Mm. How does that work? And I'm mm-hmm. curious to get your perspectives on that, you know, but mm-hmm. we can do that. Hopefully we have some time to do that. Yeah, but, sure. Um, you know, we have like, it's the international development is so paternalistic, right? And it's rooted in this, oh, you know, people in Africa or Latin America are said they can't take care of themselves. They don't really care about, um, you know, the, the same kinds of things that we in the West, you know, or Europe or the United States care about. We have to take care of them. <clears throat> and that uh, has fed this, you know, kind of the, the general a paradigm that people who work in international development have had for pretty much since, you know, forever up until mm-hmm. it's just within the last maybe 10, 15 years that you really start seeing kind of a, a like an actual voice of changing that. And it's, it's blatant and, and we, and we carry it out 
whether we want to or not. And, mm-hmm. and that's where, you know, I'm really curious what, what you think of racism the, the, in terms of the definition. So uh, when I was, you know, learning about racism, what have you, to us, you know, you were a racist if you just believed that other races were inferior, right? And so if you were like, oh, I think all races are equal, okay, then I'm not a racist. I'm off the hook. I'm good. You know, don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't worry <laughs> about me, right? You know, but really what it's, what it's about, it's about, as I understand it, and that's why I want you to hear your perspective, sure. like it's about oppression. Mm-hmm. It's about outcomes. And it's about, you know, maintaining a, a status quo that, that is unjust. And so I can believe that black people and white people are genetic equals. Um, but if I'm not actively working to dismantle these structured systems that keep, you know, that do keep us so far apart, I mean, and, and pretty much every statistical indicator you want to look at about well-being, you'll see huge gaps between black people and white people, wherever, mm-hmm. wherever, right? You know, and so um, if I'm not working to actively dismantle that, like, that's kind of racist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not about inputs, it's about outcomes. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So don't tell me whether what your intent was, that doesn't matter. What matters is what what's the result. Mm-hmm. And so before I guess, I guess before I go further, I, I'm kind of curious what your perspectives are and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Um, yeah, I think that um, you've hit it nail on the head. Um, you know, racism is not a belief so much as um, a, a set of actions or non-actions. Um, if uh-huh. you are acting in a way that um, uh, creates outcomes of disparity, <laughs> um, and and those dis- those that are disparate are uh, they're it's based on their ethnicity, um, and even um, some would argue that uh, socioeconomic the socioeconomic argument that you know it's really socioeconomics. Well, I don't think so though. Um, and I think that right. you have provided a great example of that because you described yourself as having been on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale growing up, but you still right. understood, you know, that you had privilege and you still had um, a feel a, a sense of ease as you navigated your life, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so um, so that's not um, exactly true, you know. Socioeconomics right. does play a part because those that are um, of certain ethnic groups have a greater propensity to being um, on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So that then, um, you know, plays out that way, but it definitely is not cart before the horse or horse before the cart. Um, race is a, right. a great um, predictor of that. <laughs> um, and so, right. um, so yeah. Uh, and I also think that um, racism is uh, based on non-action, you know, just being in, a, right. in an environment where you have the opportunity to, or where you are a decision maker, or you have the opportunity to plant seeds of, or decisions that need to be made that help level out the playing field. Um, you know, are you someone who is um, in a, in an environment where um, there are situations that arise that um, you just kind of like what you described with um, the systemic racism that exists within the police force. Are you just going along with it for fear of what it, of the impact it may have on you? Or are you going to make the difficult decision to, um, you know, make a difference and make a difference, not just not on a, on a micro level, but also on a macro level, you know, uh, 
Are you going to be the one who in the, um, uh, when you're interviewing the candidates and you have, um, you know, equal, those of equal um, training and uh, benefit to an organization, you know, what's your final, what are your final decisions based upon? Um, you know, that, and that's kind of a, a, a big one too, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, yeah. that's very controversial because that goes back to uh, even, you know, when I was coming into school, uh, college as an undergrad from out of high school, uh, you know, there was the EOP program, the Equal Opportunity Program for uh, minorities in terms of entrance. And so um, I recall being in high school and a lot of my classmates, and honestly, I didn't want to go to um, a mainstream university. I, I wanted to attend a historically Black um, college. That was what mm -hmm. I wanted to do. And so, um, and more so because um, historically black colleges offer to um, people of color specifically, you know, our black population, um, an opportunity to come together with others in the culture in a way that promote and kind of remove that element of, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, how do I describe it? It's kind of a, a, a place where you can go and just be, you know, just go and be and, right. and, and thrive in school and not have to worry about the microaggressions, not have to worry about, um, you know, those um, inequalities that might exist in, uh, in other, you know, brick and mortar schools. And so um, when I was, you know, striving to do that, I, my first admission was to UCLA. My parents mm -hmm. wanted me to attend UCLA and um, UCLA, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and UCLA was down the street. I didn't want to go to UCLA. Right. I didn't want to be at home. Right. <laughs> I was trying to get out of the house. Yeah. And so right. I hit those, I hit the um, admission letters. Uh, it was UCLA, Berkeley and um, UC Riverside and um, a few other schools. I, and I hit those letters under my bed because I was waiting for... <laughs> I was waiting for um, Howard University. That's where I wanted to attend. Right, right, and so right. um, when I finally got that letter, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> look, I, I got into college and it's, you know, it's at Howard. Right. And so, um, but my classmates were feverishly waiting, you know, for acceptance to UCLA, to, you know, right. all of, to these other schools. Now, um, there was an assumption that, um, black kids were taking the seats of qualified white kids. And, right. um, and on some level, there was a subset at that time, there was a subset, there were a subset of uh, admissions that were reserved for kids that were coming from communities that may not have been prepared in the second, they're, they're trying to even uh, level out the playing field, you right. know? Sure. And so, um, however, I attended school with them my white counterparts and I um, was prepared in the same classrooms that they were. And I took the SAT and I, you know, I qualified, I qualified, right. <laughs> you know, I had a GPA right. that qualified. So um, I didn't get in through those programs. However, I understood the importance of them. So I, I 
you know, tried to not, you know, say much about it. I didn't say much about my admission every, you know, like every week there would be like this summary thing in, in English where people would kind of share where they were going to school or whatnot. And um, I was just quiet until, you know, I was, I was waiting for that one letter. So finally I just got fed up. There was one kid who just was, he would not shut up. He was just so annoying. <laughs> And he just, he would go on and on about how um, he, he was really upset because he was waiting to, he wanted to, I think his school was uh, UC Santa Barbara, that, that I still remember that he wanted to get into. And he's like, you know, the UCs are, you know, they're giving out admissions to all the black kids and so on and so forth. And I said, you know what, um, honestly, there's a reason for you know, EOP program. So we, you know, we had this discussion about mm -hmm. it as a class. I said, but I, not every black kid that's getting into college is having to have these concessions made. Like some are actually, you know, qualified equitably, right. you know, to, right. to every other candidate. Um, and, and I, I'm one of them, you know, I got into UCLA mm -hmm. weeks ago and, you know, right. he's like, well, what's your GPA? What's your, you know, and like, I had to show my, like, my credentials, you know, to prove right, it. And I said, well, right. I'm not going to play that game with you. I'm not going to, you know, go into that where I'm having to prove myself. However, believe it, it's true. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I got into school and, um, so I guess like, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but, um, to answer your question, I believe that, uh, so I know that, that that is a controversial issue in terms of um, making those kinds of decisions to level out the playing field. But that's my definition of racism. It's um, about, um, as you said, oppression. It's about um, making decisions that create disparities across ethnic groups. And it's about um, not stepping up to the plate when you have the opportunity to do so. That's what right. I think it is. Yeah, it's kind of Hippocratic oath sort of kind of thing, you know, like in a sense. I mean, if if you're not if you're not working to solve a problem, you are part of the problem. Yeah, really. For I sure. mean, that's mm -hmm. not there's nothing to really get around that, you know, mm -hmm. but I wanted to tell a little. Well, first of all, yeah, there's man, I feel like we could talk. It's could, it's could be this topic could be its own podcast on its own, you know, but like, yeah, um, there's uh, there's, you know, I was interviewed for a, a professorship um, a few years ago and I was a finalist and I was in a lot of people thought I was the favorite because it was uh, it was actually at Western State College where I had gone for a couple of years and I mm -hmm. lived in Gunnison for a few years and it was a mm -hmm. director of a program that I have experience in. And, um, I knew a bunch of people in town and, you know, it was seen by many as a foregone conclusion that I'd get the job. Uh, mm -hmm. I did not get the job. And the, and, you know, when I was going through the interview process, I was at a table of um, all white people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there were, there were three white guys that all looked like me. We're all outdoorsy types, you know, and we're talking about like international development type work that, that you know, I would be setting curriculum for as part of this program. It was a really cool program. And then, uh, you know, there were two women that were both white. And I thought, this is not going to go well for me. It shouldn't go well for me. This is, this is a potential problem. And I, I don't remember if they asked me, can you see a potential problem or what are some things against you or not? Or I just thought it. Mm -hmm. But I just thought it's too homogenous. Mm -hmm. And the, the person who got the job was a Latino who had better experience than me. He did. I went, you know 
kind of jilted X stalked him for a little bit. And I was like, okay, he's better than me. He's got more experience mm -hmm. and, and it's more appropriate for this kind of thing, you know, but he's a Latino and I know that there are white people that would be like, I didn't get the job because, you know, mm -hmm, Latino mm -hmm. got it. And, you know, and I didn't get it because I'm white. And, but part yeah. of me also thought, well, like, even if we were exactly equal, or even if somehow I was, I, I had a different set of skills that mm -hmm. were probably better than some of his skills for certain things, you know, but like, I would be denied, if I was hired, it would be denying the students a diversity of perspectives. Um, and really, it, it would have reduced the quality of their education in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so another way of looking at the equal opportunity programming that you're talking about mm -hmm. is as a student, I think part of your, your, uh, your experience isn't just, you know, what did I learn from the professor in this class? Mm -hmm. It's what's the overall experience and environment that I'm around and who am I surrounding? My, like um, so much of our educational experience is about the people yeah. that we go to, to school with. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like once you hit a certain like minimum here, okay, here's the requirement, you know, like say a, a school requires everyone to have a 3.0. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, everyone over 3.0, now you're, you've, re you've mm -hmm. now, satisfied the the graduate admission minimum so mm -hmm. that's off the table mm -hmm. right you know so if you have a a 3.29 and joe blow has a 3.3 that doesn't matter that doesn't mean that he's more qualified you guys are equally qualified you know because you've 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 exceeded the minimum standard anyway you know and so i feel like a lot of people don't understand those components as well that that there's like it doesn't matter if we're talking about biodiversity, economic diversity. Like you, you got stocks. You don't buy one stock, right? You buy a bunch of stocks. Right. <laughs> right. Like diversity equals strength. It's always strength. Right. You know whatever we're talking about, and and you know it's a it's a much richer experience. The the priority should be leveling the playing field. I just want to make that known. And so like let's I I I'm a, I'm supportive of those programs that mm -hmm. that are like bridges. Ideally, we wouldn't need those programs, yeah, but yeah. we need them. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so no, we aren't there yet. So yeah. we need that kind of stuff, you know, but another element is the, you know, like the richness of, of the environment that you're working in. Mm -hmm. I, <clears throat> I don't know how much time you have. Um, I've got plenty of time, but I never haven't really talked about it. There's a couple experiences that I had in Haiti that are relevant. You know, you asked about it. And of course we, I, you know, turned it into a discussion on how do you define racism? So I don't know. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. To things, yeah, but... I'd love to hear that. So, I do want to say yeah. this though. Um, I did, I, I ended up not going to Howard. Um, and oh, um, okay. Yeah. I was going to ask. Yeah, good. I wanted to know <laughs> yeah. where did you go? Well, I, I didn't, and... I went to UC Riverside. Um, I was okay. admitted to a program there that was, um, you know, suited for what I wanted to do at that time. But I, yeah, I didn't attend Howard. However, um, two of my children have attended, um, historically black colleges and um, their experiences were what I'd hoped mine would have been. That's and, great. Yeah. And so they, um, uh, my son specifically has, I mean, he's, he's always been a kid who was very comfortable in any room, like n never had any uh -huh. issue with, um, you know, being uncomfortable, being the only one, being the majority, being the minority, being, you know, any of that. Um, very confident. And um, I wanted him to have that experience. It wasn't actually his choice. 
initially, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I really, really uh, encouraged him to do it. And then um, after about a year in, he called me and he said, you know, mom, thank you. You know, thank you. Uh, it's easy. He at that point, you know, saw the value in that experience. So um, yeah, but I, anyway, I went to UC Riverside and, and I, I had a great experience there, uh, but yeah, I didn't end up going to Howard for um, a variety of reasons. Some of them uh, economic, just the the realization of, you know, the cost of attending school out of state right. and, you know, right. flights and all the other stuff that goes right. along with doing right. that, yeah. being away from family yeah. um, and, and that um, proximity. But my kids are a lot braver than I was. So. <laughs> I think I think the number one basketball recruit I don't know how much you pay attention to basketball recruiting, but, um, you know, in, in basketball, there's this phenomenon of one and done, right? You go mm-hmm. to college for one year, and if you're good enough, you just go right into the pros after that one year. Mm-hmm. I think the number one recruit last year who was recruited by Duke and all the, you know, blue chip programs, I think he went to Howard. I think he chose Howard because he's like, I'm, you know, and so there's this movement I I that, think, yeah. in the African-American community to, of, if it's one and done, why not go to an HB? see you know Mm -hmm. i mean it's you know not that i would have any you know a judgment on someone that goes to duke or whatever and for one year do your thing but i thought that was pretty cool that that he chose to go there yeah i did see that that's pretty awesome okay so what happened in haiti uh, you know the the some of this institutionalized stuff that i've seen i mean first of all I, i couldn't when i moved there i started um you know, so when I started the project, I had been there, I would go down for a few weeks at a time, but then I moved there in January of, of 2016, and I was there for a year and a half. Um, and I, you know, you meet expats and people who work in the field and all that sort of stuff that you're not exposed to if you just go down for a couple of weeks at a time. And I was meeting all these people who were in positions of influence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kept hearing people say, I couldn't believe how often I heard people say Haitians don't have critical thinking ability. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just like, what? You know, and I, every time I heard it, I would call it out like that is a racist statement. Oh, no, 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 no. It's really not. You know, I work here. I can say I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't say that just because you work here, you know, but it, I heard it a lot. Like it was baffling to me. Now, unfortunately, you know, there's, well, I don't know if I should. Well, yeah, whatever. A lot of people, the church has a lot of, there's a lot of churches, faith-based organizations, and there's ridiculous how much racism exists in in those, in those fields. But it's not just church groups that are faith-based organizations right here, this, you know, and um, so that's just kind of some of, uh, you know, like, we'll just kind of put that in the, uh, in the, uh, the discussion. We'll set that to the side here, you know, and just understanding that that is a thing that, that exists. But I, I, I learned to ride a motorcycle in Haiti because that's how I could get around uh, much quicker. Traffic is really bad. If you're in a car, you can't maneuver. You're just going to be stuck in traffic all the time. It's cheaper, way cheaper. And I could actually take it into the mountains, which is where the, um, the uh, programs, the projects that we do are in mountains where there's no roads. But this one particular time I was coming back and I had always been told if you ever get in a traffic incident, um, you have to leave, you know, do anything you can, just do not hang around. You're going to be, no one's going to listen to you. Uh, you're going to be blamed for it, whether you're at fault or not. Um, and you're, it, it very easily could get violent. 
right? And I'm like, wow. okay, whatever. It's in my head, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I go through, in order to get to our project area, I have to go through this town called Quadabouquet. And it's very, it's like a traffic, uh, you know, point like a center where different roads come and meet there and then there's just it's tons and tons and tons of traffic and it's chaotic and it's you know motors motorcycles everywhere and it's you know so i'm coming back and this is maybe two months in from having learned how to ride a motorcycle and i'm I'm driving through this traffic jam and i have to go through this particular area to get it's the only way to get to where my project is our project is i should say Mm -hmm. and um I got hit by a car. Like I was going to oh go gosh. through into this one particular, it was slow speed. I'm okay. But, you know, it, but I was this, you know, and, and I can weave motorcycles. You're expected to weave through traffic. If you just sit and take up the space that a car could take, traffic would be a million times worse. So if you're not like weaving through traffic, people get upset with you. And so um, I'm doing this, but I move into this one space and I get hit by a car and the guy's bumper is you know held on by like bailing wire or something and it catches my one of my foot pegs and it rips his bumper off and i'm like great <laughs> you know and it, it hit me hard enough i didn't fall but it hit me hard enough to where i i was startled and i you know like my whatever i stopped the motorcycle it just it shut off because i hit the kill switch on accident anyway so then i'm like okay uh, this happened. He gets out of the car. He picks up his bumper and he's gesturing at me like, this is your fault. You know, and, I'm, and it was not my fault. I knew it wasn't my fault. Um, but I also thought, man, this is where people are telling me I got to get out of here. Should I leave? Right. And I'm like, well, well, I can't because I have to come through here every time I go to our project site and I will be recognized. Like people know, they, you know, I'm the only white person on a motorcycle. I know that people know who I am. <laughs> it's just how it works. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I felt like, and, and if I leave, that's saying you're guilty, right? So I'm like, right. I can't leave. And I just don't feel right about it anyway. So I'm going to stay here and I'm going to deal with the situation. My Creole was not great at the time. It's not great now, but I can speak a little. And, um, you know, I was able to spit out, you know, like, like I did not do that, right? You know, I didn't do this. And, and he's, you know, and then there's some Spanish and a few other people, you know, come around. I'm able to explain a little bit in Spanish. There's a little bit of English being spoken and people are trying to figure out. Next thing I know, within like a minute and a half, I'm, we're surrounded by like 30, 35 people. And I'm like, oh, this is now becoming a thing. <laughs> like, this is, there's a lot of people and they're all, you know, kind of arms folded. And, and I never felt threatened. I never felt physically threatened at all. Mm-hmm. I was never scared because that's a bullshit thing that, you know, the media and people who work there perpetuate this false narrative that Haitians are violent. They are not. They're yeah. some of the nicest people on the planet. And, um, people started asking questions and they, and they were listening to me. I, I had an opportunity to explain what, you know, I wanted my side of things, but my language was limited. So I wasn't able to really go into it. And people were asking him questions. And finally this woman runs up, she's an old woman who'd been sitting there. And this is maybe after like three or four minutes. And she's like shaking her finger and she comes like a, like running up to both of us. And, and I'm thinking, oh no, what's she going to say? And she goes up to that man and she's like clearly saying, this is your fault. You hit this guy. You did this, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then another woman comes up and just starts yelling at him as well. And then it was clear that they had come to my defense, right? You know, and they're saying mm-hmm. that it was his fault. 
And then they're like, uh, blah, ukale, like, you, you know, white dude, you can leave now, you know, you can go. And I'm like, moikale. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can leave. And, and uh, uh, by the way, earlier I said moikafesa, I said moikafesa, which is I didn't do this, but mm-hmm. not that anyone really cares about it. But anyway, you know, when I left, I realized everything I had been told by people who worked in Haiti for a long time and had been driving around Haiti in the wrong time was 100% wrong. I never was threatened. I was listened to. Everyone deliberated. They came, you know, they came to the, a fair conclusion. By my perspective, it was fair. I'm sure the guy who hit me didn't think it was fair. Mm-hmm. But everybody around me, like, you know, they all listened and came up to this, you know, came up with a solution that, that was the right outcome. And um, I know that that was because I, I stopped. I took the time. I was, you know, I feel like I was respectful, but also they're people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like they're not like, there's tension between white people, you know, who do work in Haiti and Haitians because most white people go down there with the, the wrong set of assumptions about how things should work. And, you know, I just remember that moment. I just was like, wow, man, people who do this kind of work have it so wrong and it's people who do it at the grassroots level it's people who do it at an institutional level it's people who do it working for large organizations like oxfam or red cross Mm -hmm. you know and so that's like when i talk about you know the institutionalization of aid work and the um you know we like to say it's paternalistic it's freaking racist you know like when we understand what racism is it's you can't not say it's racist right we have put into you know programs you know whether it's haiti or africa or colombia or you know southeast asia whatever part of the world it is nothing's changing right like really there there are there are I shouldn't say nothing's changing, right? Malaria has been largely eradicated. You know, there's, you know, some education programs have certainly accomplished some things, but, but like on a real level, you, it's, things really haven't changed a whole lot. And, you know, that's that way because we're not actually empowering people at the grassroots level or at any level for that matter. We don't really empower people who live in the countries where we are working to, um, I don't, I don't know that I should even say empowering them to change things. Cause mm-hmm. really I feel like there should be some, you know, like I, I conceptualize our work as like a type of reparations, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a reparative work that contributes to sovereignty in a country that has been historically tied down against their will. Yeah. Right. And so I like the way you if, say in, if we're not seeing countries, you know, equalize, it's not because of them. It's because of us. Right. You know, so like in that TED talk that, that I had you watch, you know, mm-hmm. I made the point that um, when I look at kind of these statistical disparities between black people and white people, I, I've thought, okay, why do we have these disparities, generally speaking? And there's really kind of two, I guess, trains of thought there, right? There's the, the idea that, okay, these, these st- statistical disparities, the gap between black people and white people is so large because we have systemic and institutionalized racism. That's my belief. Mm-hmm. Or 
they're not capable, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, that's the ugly kind of blatant racism of, you know what I mean? And so if you can't actually say uh, it's systemically, you know, derived, you're automatically putting yourself in the, this other category of, you know, they're not capable. And, and a, a kind of a code word for saying they're not capable is, you know, we have these paternalistic, you know, it's that paternalism, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the, the, the big picture, it's really hard for me not to see, um, you know, the, the racism that is fundamentally entrenched in the work that we do. And, yeah. and I say we in a very general sense. And, and I was guilty of it initially, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so when I first started going to Haiti and working, we were handing out you know, water filtration systems. That sounds great, right? And we look cool and we get to, you know, you can market yourself as making all this difference, you know, because we handed out, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of these filtration systems. But it doesn't actually shift the 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 structural elements that cause this divide, you know. And so now what we do is we build rainwater harvesting systems that's infrastructure. And uh, the people on the ground actually, you know, who live there, they're actually doing that work. We, you know, I mean, each system costs like $1,500 to build, but about $600 of it goes to paying local people who have their own, in essence, businesses. Um, and then those, those rainwater harvesting systems, it's not just that they're providing water for communities that don't have access to it. Um, and therefore improving their community health, they then turn around and they figured out ways to where now, like, okay, really oversimplifying things, but climate change has shifted weather patterns. And so they can no longer rely on the growing seasons that they typically have been able to rely on. Mm -hmm. So now what they can do is they can keep seedlings alive. And then when rains do come, they can plant the seedlings and then it makes them more agriculturally productive. Um, children don't have to walk. Uh, so far to get water out of streams that aren't fit, you know, to drink because they're used for a variety of watering animals and bathing and doing laundry and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So now they can spend more time in school, um, you know, and then are the process that we've, we've done, we don't bring people down from the states, these, you know, and we don't have volunteer programs. I'm like the only white person that's involved in, in what's happening in Haiti, mm -hmm. you know, so it's really, it's empowered some people to assume leadership positions. And, you know, when I went down in March and, and COVID hit, and it was clear I wasn't going to be able to stay. You know, I worked with, you know, our partner down there, his name's Sunel. He's awesome. We worked together to develop a coronavirus awareness trainings that people, you know, that's, that's cult, that's contextually appropriate to mm -hmm. their communities using their form of, of Creole so that they go around and they, you know, he recruited, he recruited people from his community to, to go through these trainings and then go give those trainings. And then another guy who works in the area, Wilner, and then another one whose like name I'm going to just draw a blank on right now. They've gone through this tippy tap training program. It's all on our website, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they, they, it's improving hand washing, right? You know, mm -hmm. but it's all stuff that's happened there on their, you know, that they have come up with these things. So they're actually empowered to, to make these, um, I don't want to say changes, but to, to, you know, implement these kinds of programs. So I think it's, it has a much greater impact than just, hey, let's go down and hand stuff out and, and you know, push that around on Instagram. And, you know, and it's, it's part of the, the, it's just one part of a lot of things that we need to see changing, but where we really, 
work together to empower people on the ground to be able to make decisions about how the project should be implemented and managed and then grown. And, um, you know, I like to think that that's part of, you know, the, the dismantling of the racism, if you will. And I know we've got a lot more work to do. And sometimes I'm not very good and I get tired and it's hard and what have you. But um, I've been really, you know, blessed to, to have worked with the people that I work with there to the degree that to where we were able to establish trust with the community. And that trust allows us to communicate, which allows us to be better, more transparent, which allows us, you know, to, to show some accountability between us and the community that we work with, you know. And I think that's kind of what we have to do in order to, to really start moving things uh, in a more positively impacting way. And I just see that there's so much of what I've experienced in Haiti applies here. Mm -hmm. All right. It's, you know, it's, and it, it really comes down to these, these racial dynamics that, that need to be um, actively dismantled. Yeah. It's not um, going to happen overnight, but I feel like it could, <laughs> you know, like we are choosing to be racist, right? Yeah. That's the choice, right? Yeah. And it's interesting you say that. Um, so just thinking about the differences in the mindset of the people there in Haiti versus here, um, you know, it's possible to do, but it's, again, the culture, you know, that has to make that shift um, to allow those changes to take place. Like, you know, we're having to work through a global pandemic just to get people to pay attention. <laughs> you know, right. yeah, we had to have a global pandemic just to get people to pay attention to the reality of the inequalities that exist, right? We just, yeah. so, wow. Um, I, th I think that what you're doing is, is truly awesome. And um, I'm really excited to share uh, with my listeners what you do and what can be done, what, you know, someone like yourself can do to make a difference, you know, dismantling inequality one day at a time, one mission at a time. And I just, I just yeah. think that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for well, all thank your work. Thank you. That's, 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 uh, it's, it really is. I, I know I said this at the beginning, but it's humbling to hear things like that, you know, and, and I know that, you know, I mean, we got, we got lots more to work on and, <laughs> you know, we're not perfect. We, we make mistakes and I, and I, and me too, you know, I mean, I, I know that I have a lot more that I can, I can do to be, you know, to learn more and to, mm -hmm. to be a, a more, um, I guess, impactful part of this shift that, that we need to see. Um, but, you know, like you've been awesome, Saran. I mean, having me on and, and opening up like this and having, like, I don't know if you've had white people on your program before, but, uh, you know, or men, like it, it's empowering women, right? Mm -hmm. And or phenomenal women, you know, and so it's, I think it, it speaks a lot to you to open up and say, all right, let's explore something different. I mean, this could have gone weird, right? I mean, yeah, we know each other from a long time ago, but mm -hmm. we don't know each other super well. Yeah. You know, see, so you never know. Like, okay, maybe I'm going to have to dump this one in the trash. That went, you know, awkward. <laughs> it was awful. You know, I mean, that could so happen, funny. right? You know, there are people yeah. that. No, you know, I had like every it's... confidence that it would go well because um, so think things are top. I, I, I'm really, I was really excited that you were willing to discuss these kinds of issues, yeah. you know, um, here on yeah. this platform. So I really, really appreciate it. 
Um, where can where can my listeners find you? Well, I have uh, I guess the way that I'm, you know, probably the best way is Instagram. Mm-hmm. Might be the the way to see kind of more what I'm about now. It started out as just travel photos, and then I just like I just felt like this is stupid. How can I post travel photos with everything that's going on right now? You know, um, but so that's Jesse, J E S S E B, just the letter B mm-hmm. um, underscore P H D, um, and then our website is frameworks.org, and that's F R M wrx.org mm-hmm. and there's further personal contact information on both of those that they can find awesome. um, and then uh you know our instagram for our org is at frameworks frmwrx as well but i have that on my per- on my you know my instagram and then mm-hmm. um, i have personal contact information on our website too and i'm, I'm i love to interact with people i love he- hearing from people and um you know, yeah. talking about all this stuff, it's, it's important mm-hmm. and it's interesting, but I don't want to make it seem like, you know, that was one of the things like my undergraduate degrees in anthropology and it just felt like when I was studying it, you know, I was like, oh, this is, this whole field is based on white people just going around and so let's study these fascinating people <laughs> Mm-hmm. exotic locale you know? <laughs> there's something weird about that not right about it you uh-huh. know so i don't like to make it seem like oh these conversations are really interesting they are but if they're not if they're just conversations it's kind of pointless you know yeah. like no you're definitely a doer turn into action so yeah no you're definitely a doer appreciate that so i what i'm going to do as well is um you've provided your uh instagram and also uh your website I will also provide a link to those on the show notes as well. Um, a link to your TED talk, because I think that is um, really interesting as well uh, for, for the listeners to tune in and, and hear even more in depth about the things that you're doing over in Haiti and your perspective on, on these kinds of issues. So, yeah. I, yeah. And how do I promote you? You know, like what's the best way? I mean, I, you know, and I guess you can send me an email on that. You don't need to tell your listeners. <laughs> you tell me how to, how to promote you. But I, I really, I want to, I want to put it out there because, you know, I've listened to a couple of your episodes and they're really, you know, they're interesting. Yeah. They're really interesting. Thank like you. not interesting. And again, in an entertaining way, but like it's informative. And I think that, you know, what's interesting, or I guess one of the cool things about podcasts is that it doesn't have to be interactive right mm-hmm. i can i can turn it on and you can do your thing and i can be like oh like um you and i were talking on one of our phone calls about i'm just drawing a blank right now you know but the women that you were interviewing mm-hmm. um had that youtube program you know and i just got there were some interesting insights that i would not have had mm-hmm. if i hadn't been listening oh what's and, so and it's a good way yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think what's what's cool is and I, I don't I don't know if this is awkward or weird or whatever, but mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're the one black friend and everyone's coming to you with questions, it's overwhelming. But if you have this this podcast it, like go check out episode. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and get like, back hey, to me. Let me know. We'll talk about it. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna you're gonna get some exposure that you need, that yeah. we need, right? Without having to to really 
be an emotional burden on our friends that you know are constantly being barraged with this sort of stuff so i really appreciate your podcast just in general i think it's awesome yeah Um, well the best way to support the podcast is to share it to like to subscribe comment um on any of the platforms that uh, where you'll find it, which is on iTunes as well as SoundCloud and also on YouTube. So um, I will definitely um, provide you additional information about how to do that. Um, and cool. so, yeah, that's the best way to support the, support the podcast, but it has been so wonderful to sit down and talk to you today. Um, yeah, I've learned so much. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I, I really, Really, that was cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it again in the future at some yeah, point. I would love too. to. You know, maybe I'll have a maybe I'll have a podcast and I can have you as a guest. Oh, I was, oh, <laughs> awesome! Yeah, please do it. That would be amazing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, Saran. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Take care. All right. I believe that every woman gives the universe with her own strengths and unique characteristics. Simply because she is born, the universe benefits. Every woman is growing, learning, and evolving. Only positive seeds are sown here, no matter how flawed the soil. Phenomenal. Phenomenal woman. It's Phenomenal Wednesday. Tune in Wednesdays. Phenomenal Woman Wednesday podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. You may also visit our website at www.pwwr365.com. Follow us on Instagram at pwwr365. Please be certain to rate, comment, and most importantly, subscribe. Take care.